Welcome to the Good Clinical Podcast presented by ACRO. For ACRO, I'm Robert Siegel. The National Institutes of Health describes good clinical practice, or GCP, as a set of international guidelines. These guidelines help to assure the safety, integrity, and quality of clinical trials. ACRO's Good Clinical Podcast draws upon these GCP standards to present a series of conversations conversations about how the clinical research industry aims to make trials better for patients. These conversations with industry leaders shine a spotlight on hot topics in clinical research, from recruiting more diverse populations into trials to using technologies that can reduce the burdens on trial participation. ACRO's GCP brings together some of the sharpest minds in clinical research to discuss how innovation can help us build better trials. Now to our host, Sophia McLeod. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of GCP. I'm Sophia McLeod, and today I'm joined by Kimberly Richardson, founder of the Black Cancer Collaborative, a nonprofit that creates partnerships between Black cancer patients and the medical and scientific communities on issues of health equity, patient inclusion, and clinical trial participation. Kimberly and I sat down in July to dive a bit deeper on how her career journey led to her current work in patient advocacy, how policy is impacting diversity and inclusion in clinical trials today, and the importance of diversity in all aspects of the industry. I hope you enjoy the episode. Kimberly, thank you so much for joining me today. We really appreciate having you here on GCP. I'd like to start with a little icebreaker we've come up with that we ask everyone who joins me on GCP, and that is what does good clinical practice mean to you? Well, thank you for having me, Sophia. Um, I think for me, uh, as a patient advocate, good clinical practice starts with effective and meaningful communication. If your patient doesn't understand fully anything about their disease, they are never going to understand the care and the treatment and even treatment options that are available to them. And I think that is the, the the main issue when it becomes when it comes to becoming a patient. You're going about your life and now you have an illness. And now you are thrown into the history and the world of this disease. And somebody has to translate that information for you. Someone who's familiar with the history and the, the world of that disease. And oftentimes that's not taken care of in the best way to me. So I think it really does begin with effective and meaningful communication. Yeah, I think that's fabulous. And I think having you here for the patient angle is so important because, you know, at the end of the day, when our ACRO members as CROs and technology companies are doing these clinical trials, and it all comes down to the patient. Without patients, we don't have anything to do. And so making sure we're trusting patients as equal partners in the process and really kind of bringing them in is so important. So that was a great answer. Thank you very much. I think it's setting us up really well for today. And with that, my first question for the real bulk of our discussion today is just to kind of have you give us a quick recap of how you got involved in patient advocacy and got to the place um, and the work that you're doing today. Well, I'm a two-time cancer survivor, and my advocacy largely started because of my first diagnosis, which was in 2013 of 
a very rare form of ovarian cancer called granulosa cell tumor. And my advocacy largely got started because of my lack of communication with my surgeon who then became my gynecological oncologist. And my prior background, prior to being diagnosed, I was an urban planner. I was an adjunct professor of urban studies. And so I, I thought of myself as a pretty red and educated person. And so uh, research didn't scare me. Uh, learning and knowing how to conduct research didn't scare me and where to find information. But when I went to the internet in 2013, nothing was there on granuloso cell tumor. So I opened up the internet and thought I was dying in five years because that's literally what search browsers were saying. But I was looking at high-grade serous ovarian cancer and I didn't know the difference. The reason why I didn't know the difference is because my oncologist didn't tell me what the difference was, right? I was diagnosed on the table. Uh, largely, I thought I was going into a surgery to remove an ovarian cyst. And 14 hours later, I am talking to the surgeon who started the surgery. I was told and tapped on my shoulder that I had cancer. I had to wait three weeks for a follow-up visit to even understand what that diagnosis meant to me and didn't get a and didn't get a satisfactory answer at that follow-up. And so then I'm waiting another two weeks to meet with the gynecological oncologist who didn't give me the time. In fact, my diagnosis was scribbled on the back of a referral note <laughs> for my chemo port procedure. That was the very first time I saw GCT stage three. It was just assumed that somebody else was going to explain all of this to me. So that's where my advocacy started. It was like, if I am a, a pretty educated person and can and know where to go for information and know where to ask questions, and I brought in so many PubMed articles trying to understand and still uh, was faced with the pushback of, listen, lady, this is a this is a 10-minute visit. I'm not getting into all those research articles you brought in. And I thought about that and I said, well, what happens to the Black brown woman who gets diagnosed with ovarian cancer, who's a cashier or at a gas station or, you know, a secretary anywhere who, who doesn't know where to look for information and would be expecting to get this information from their provider. And that's where my advocacy largely started. How can I help to educate and build up the capacity of a Black cancer patient in order for their self-efficacy to increase during this very life-threatening time? Yeah. I mean, I think that's such a common way for patient advocates to get started is it's wonderful to have you and other patient advocates now for other patients to, you know, look to, but you shouldn't have had to be one, you know, if the world was working perhaps a little more seamlessly in some of these areas, you know, it'd be nice if we could rely on a medical system that acknowledges these kind of gaps in communication and the need for better working with patients through a diagnosis and not just sort of, as you said, scribbling it on a referral note. Yeah, but here's the deal, <laughs> Sophia, this is what I learned through my process. I learned that it wasn't all my provider. Mm -hmm. I learned that it was also in advocacy organizations, right? 
who weren't ready to have conversations with Black and Brown patients around areas of disparities or inequity, that their advocacy organizations weren't recruiting or even looking for Black and Brown cancer patients. It was status quo. And I remember when I asked about it with a local advocacy organization, I was told, well, the data really doesn't bear out the need for an awareness campaign for Black women. Now, that was 10 years ago. And now we have a proliferation of research talking and discussing the mortality rates in gynecological cancer just a decade later. But this is what drives policy and this is what drives programs and organizations to act. If the data's not there, then it doesn't exist. Along this line, I mean, you've been working to bring attention to this area and to the importance of the inclusion of historically excluded populations in clinical research. I have seen you speak at more than one conference, uh, including the Acro 20th, which we, again, appreciate you joining. But, you know, you've been involved in so much conversation around this, and it's a lot of talk. But what do you feel like in these conversations you're having? What isn't being discussed? What's sort of missing? What's the missing piece from these conversations? Well, it's the missing piece that's the same piece that was prior to 2020 and COVID and George Floyd. It's the same piece. It was just that the covers were snatched off in 2020, where people had to face the inequities of healthcare. They had to face what's happening in terms of the mortality of cancer care, right? But as you can also see three years later, people are tired of talking about disparities. Everyone seemed to use disparities and the uh, shelter in place as this wonderful opportunity to just have panels and presentations and webinars. And everybody was about, can you educate me on disparities? And in 2020, Black and brown people were going, really? We're have, we have to explain disparities. This is what we're doing with our time, right? So we did an awful lot of that. And a lot of researchers uh, got lots of grant money to, to talk about disparities. And here we are three years later, lots of research, lots of history, lots of educating people who are supposed to be able to make policy change. And nothing's happening. I won't, I don't want to diminish things like the Depict Act, right? The omnibus uh, uh, bill that was passed in late 2022, which is now making diverse action plans mandatory. But I'm also looking at the fact that it's six months into that omnibus bill passing, and I'm not seeing a single sign. No more webinars. Uh, Now it should be webinars that are going, okay, now that this thing is law, what strategies do we need to be putting in place? Nothing to talk about the disparities, but to say, how do we create best practices? Who's got the best template? Who's been doing this work prior to 2020 uh, and doing it with ease? How can we learn how to do diversity, inclusion, and equity, right? Uh, if if that's something that we don't, we're not. It's not natural to our organizations, or, our, or even in our ecosystems. That's the real challenge. How do you expect an ecosystem that may may not even be diverse in the first place to have the 
brain trust that sits around a table that can design a, a diversity strategy. That's the crazy thing to me. It's like, how do you do that <laughs> with people who aren't even diverse that's sitting around the table? Yeah. And so now you're asking for, you know, a whole ecosystem to be changed, the, the, the resources that that's going to take, right? To move folks around. It's like, and what have we done to resolve that? We've hired one DEI officer. <laughs> and, and they probably don't even have a budget nor a staff to implement anything throughout the ecostructure, ecosystem. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> when I think about six months in, maybe some of these things are happening internally. So we're not, we don't see it yet. But a year from now, it's going to be interesting whether those DEI officers start moving around on LinkedIn, like, look at me, congratulate me, I got my new job at so-and-so. It's going to be very, very telling, right? That they spent uh, a year spinning their wheels in organizations. I did see a collection of headlines recently <laughs> about um, diversity officers in Hollywood. And a lot of them, whether it was, I can't remember which like, you know, production houses it was, but it was maybe six headlines of people moving on. Yeah. On yeah, to the yeah. next. I saw that as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. And I think, you know, that it's a struggle when you say that you want to do, someone has told you to do diversity strategies, create an action plan. And we're going to, we, we want to report, right? We want to report at the end of the year. You have to look at your internal structure and go, okay, does anybody know how to do diversity? Well, you haven't thought about it. You're in this very homogeneous community of people. Yeah. I mean, I think we've, a lot of the talk we've seen, going back to this topic of endless conversation, a lot of the talk we've seen over the past three years, let's say, uh, has really been on how do we improve the diversity of participants in clinical research. But we really should also be talking about, and I not to say that nobody is, but just to highlight the importance of making sure that the companies that we represent that are going to plan these trials or think about where to go find patients, they need to also be diverse. Because you can't, it's exactly like you're saying, people in a room aren't going to think of the relevant questions and things to perhaps consider when we need to think about what a trial population should look like to be really representative of the patients who will need the therapy at the end of the road, you know? We really need to be tying the workforce piece to the participant piece. Well, I think because researchers feel that patients are, you know, we're, we're subjects. They see themselves uh, as the expert. Our lived experience is not expertise to many researchers. And so when you come with that bias, it's incredibly difficult for you to not even to think about, is, is my lab diverse? Now you want me to consider how I'm going to get Black and Brown and Asian and gay people into my studies when I, I'm just looking at raw data. I am not that akin to the person, right? I don't spend time with the people. I'm thinking about my hypothesis. I'm thinking about my endpoints, and I'm thinking about all the statistical significance that I need to prove my work. Now you're asking me to care about people. I'm like, come on. I mean, I mean, at one point that gets sort of watered down for researchers, I believe. They ultimately want to do good, right? And 
create cures and diseases and things of that nature. But I, I don't think that that's paramount to the day-to-day -day work that they do every day. And so now you're adding another level to them. And that's a skill set that a researcher primarily trained in quantitative designs that ain't in their wheelhouse. So here we are going, you know, let's let's find a way to engage patients. And they're like, huh? Unless she knows how to do a regression analysis, I ain't checking for. I'm just, I, what? What do you want from me, right? So um, those are going to be some of the challenges, I think, to true patient engagement, as well as finding the need for the actual diversity in their participation in those trials. Yeah, and they're going to be like, let's find somebody else to do it. Find a vendor, <laughs> let them figure out how to get me the the mix of people that I need. Yeah, but me personally, as the researcher, I'm not going to give that much thought. I could be wrong, but I'm I'm looking at what I, how I interact with researchers in patient engagement councils. Every question, everything we ask about patient engagement is always like a light bulb moment. Like, oh, oh, okay. That's something to consider. And then they start scribbling things down. But now they have a mandate to do this. So it's right. going to be very interesting that how, how egos are lowered a bit and say, here's a skill set I don't have. I need to be taught. Yeah. No, I think that's going to take a lot of, as you said, perhaps setting the egos aside and willing to grow a new skill set for sure, which is always, you know, interesting to see how people respond to that, but yeah. something well worth doing. I would I, say. I'm, gonna, I'm sure it's going to be really much more easier for younger researchers mm. than senior researchers. And I am a senior person. And so I say that with 100% certainty that some people are very slow to change. Yeah, and I, will, mm -hmm. and I, I suspect I suspect that the politics that are going to play out in creating diversity and creating patient engagement is going to be a, a, a power play for a lot of senior researchers. Yeah. And I mean, I think it's not a secret to say that the industry is very conservative and cautious and really likes to be told what is and isn't okay from the FDA and other regulators. So I am encouraged with the DEPICT Act and the omnibus and where we may go now with the next iteration of the diversity guidance from FDA now that it is a mandate and has to be, you know, is required. I'm crossing my fingers that we see something by the end of the year. I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, Fedora said they had to have something out by December. So I'll keep my eyes peeled. I do think it'll be interesting to see. We talk a lot about actions and, you know, there's a lot of talk where are the actions. And I'm curious to see, you know, what we as industry will take on you know, ourselves without needing that push from FDA. You know, I think we're at a point where we all agree it's a good business model at the end of the day. If you need convincing, if you're not swayed perhaps by doing something out of the good of your heart, I think we can make a pretty strong case for it's a good business model. And so I think that would, you'd hope that that would encourage some people to kind of take initiative and not wait all the time for the FDA. Well, we'll see. I mean, you know, all laws are interpreted. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, it'll be interesting with what that means in terms of FDA approval of drugs, who gets to go through the gate the way they are right now mm -hmm. and get their approvals done, re regardless of a diverse action plan. Because I can only imagine someone who's so close, a researcher who's so close uh, to drug approval 
And to all of those people who participated, uh, given some serious pushback, if they're told, well, you can't get approval for this drug that you have been participating in in a clinical trial because the participants weren't diverse enough. So you're going to tell 4,000 people that are that a life-saving drug is not going to get approved. Good luck. I'm I glad can, I don't have I, to do that. I can see 4,000 people on Twitter losing their minds. Absolutely. And saying, why are we making this about race? You know, and spinning it. And it, it's, so it'd be interesting to see how it's interpreted. Who gets to go through the gate before when do we start the diverse action plans mm -hmm. and what phases uh, when is it based on completion is it based on applications right now it's going to be very very interesting because the politics are going to begin yes yeah well thinking a little bit about an earlier comment you made about you know bias and how we think about researchers and what they're mindful of and how things are changing. I'm curious to get your thoughts on, you know, how trials are modernizing more generally, where we're going with technology, where we're going with things like AI. You know, I think a lot of people point to the ability to do hybrid trials during COVID. You know, a lot of that was done remotely. We utilized a lot of technology, really leveraged, you know, some of the capabilities we'd been working on for years and were able to show that you can run a really great trial with valid data and you don't always have to be in the trial site. And so I think that's really picked up the momentum um, for technology and everyone's really excited. But I think, you know, and maybe I'm just being cautious now, but, you know, there's some stuff I think that comes into play with technology where it's not all roses and sunshine. Um, and there's a lot of considerations that we need to be really mindful of as we continue down this road. So I'm just wondering, you know, to pick your brain a little bit on this topic, AI is really the hot button issue these days. We've seen Chuck Schumer and many others on Capitol Hill talk about an AI framework and the White House is interested and FDA's put out a paper. So it's it's a hot topic. I ask again, who's who's been to school for AI? Who's sitting around that tape? Is that table diverse? Because at the end of the day, if a diverse group of people aren't creating the algorithm, then you're going to overlook things that you're not going to even deem to be important for diverse groups of people. So that's one area. If if, if we don't train up diverse people to be involved in inter, uh, artificial intelligence as it relates to healthcare, then we're going to go right into the same scenario that we have with researchers that are not diverse. Uh, secondarily, even though we look at the data end of it, I know I've discussed with you and as well as at that panel, the whole issue around how do we find diverse participants, right? Is, it, is that going to be as easy as we thought it would be? If we dig and drill down into electronic health records, what are we going to find? When we start looking into clinical notes and trying to glean contextual information to be set through an algorithm, what are we looking for? What works are we looking for? I know we talked about that study from 2022, where we looked at all those negative descriptors that were in Black patients' clinical notes. For me, it wasn't a stretch in my imagination to say, if I have negative things in my clinical notes, when a vendor goes to find me, I'm going to be excluded 
because that vendor wants to get paid to find the best participants to send to a pharma or biotech company. So they're not looking for me that may have said clinical notes that may have said I was angry or non-compliant, but maybe you didn't look at natural language processing that allowed you to see she was angry that day because uh, somebody cut her off in the parking lot, right? And she, she said that to her doctor, but angry is the word that pops up. Boom, I'm excluded from a trial. Non-compliant about uh, not wanting to take a, a particular drug because it made me too drowsy and the type of work I do uh, requires that I be alert. So I said no to the drug. The reasoning behind my non-compliant is not what the vendor is looking for. All kinds of things could be in my records that start from the implicit bias of who is writing those clinical notes. Then a vendor who is hired, who is uh, works in a very homogeneous environment that is not requiring you to dig deeper into my clinical notes. It's just create the algorithm that finds the words that makes me uh, makes our company give the best list of participants, and we're always will be number one. So nobody is really trying to think about those kinds of issues. But a patient advocate, that's like obvious to me that that's a connection between what's in my clinical notes is creating poorer health outcomes for me and lessening my opportunities at treatment options. But does that matter? Are we tired of talking about disparities? Are we tired of talking about, oh, yet another study that is saying that Black and Brown people are being mistreated in healthcare? It's just overwhelming and too much. It's like, where do people start? So yeah, AI to me has a lot of limitations. I also think about, as you mentioned before, the whole concept of the hybrid trials, right? Uh, Everybody wanted to talk about making it easier for the patient. But when those conversations really started, it wasn't about making it easier for a black or brown patient. Nobody was thinking about how many blood draws we can actually Uh, get from a black and brown patient in their home, because who's going to that person's home? Again, is the staff homogeneous or diverse that can do the blood draw? Is the staff diverse enough to be decentralized into neighborhoods where black and brown people live and trust the the, the researchers or healthcare providers in their community? I, I, I asked you, Sophia, did will a predominantly white population of, for example, female clinical researchers want to work in underserved communities? Will they want to go to work every day from where their environment is quote unquote safe and work from nine to five, remember daylight savings time, (laughs) and come home from those underserved communities? At what point are they going to say, when did this was this the dream? And how long are how long are they going to stay? And how much uh, of a revolving door are we going to see if decentralized trials happen in that fashion? Mm. So where is the where is the career track for diverse populations to get involved in clinical research? And what's going to be the incentive for those who are in it right now to get involved in decentralized trials that may happen in underserved communities. Hmm. 
that's very uh, concerning to me. Yeah, I think that's an, an, such an interesting point too, because like everything we've talked about today, this is a conversation we've been having for a while. DCTs, hybrid trials, you know, it's nothing new. And I don't think I've heard anyone talk about this idea of the revolving door. And I wonder too, I wonder if this also, you know, we have this conversation about medical school and, you know, wanting to get more young doctors into clinical research and making them aware of the fact that clinical research is a great thing to do at your practice and, you know, incorporate into your life as a doctor. But I, I find a lot of the times in these conversations, we're not being super realistic about it. Obviously, it'd be great if in med school, they talked a little bit, and I didn't go to med school. So I couldn't tell you how often they bring up the fact that clinical research is a career path you can, you know, pursue as a doctor. But I think that's one thing to make people aware of the fact that clinical research exists. But that doesn't really help the reality of when you're working in a community hospital or you're a one doc in your community and you're just trying to get through seeing patients every day for a cold, the flu, and you can't even begin to think about how you would also run a trial site out of your office. I don't know. I don't know how we fix that, but, you know, I think that's another one of those blind spots that we have a lot of the times in these conversations. Yeah. I mean, you know, in education, they give, they give you incentives, right? You can, we'll pay your student loan if you go work and teach in an urban area. Now here's the rub. I'm a mother of twins. And so I, I, I went through that entire process. The revolving door was ridiculous right? They did the bare number of years of requirement and they bounced. (laughs) This is the decision-making process when we start creating those types of incentives. If we do it for the MD, PhD and give them uh, an incentive to uh, set up shop and do research in underserved areas, this is what we're going to get enough time to complete one project, publish, present at a conference, and they're going to (laughs) bounce. So what types of things do we need to really put into place uh, either to to create the diversity, whether we're we're doing that by looking at Black and Brown uh, students in in light of what happened last week with affirmative action, I'm, I'm, I'm almost sure there's going to be some pushback around that, um, uh, creating these incentives specifically for uh, these types of students. So we've got a lot to think through, a lot to think through. Yeah. And I wonder too, if that's something, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about the policy angle to all of this and what we could look to legislators and regulators for. And I wonder if it's, I don't know, I worry with the the climate in which we live. Well, I think that we you know, the one thing about the United States is that we create precedent yes. uh, and that that drives the way we create programs in this country, right? So public policy sometimes is done for the good of humanity and sometimes it's completely political. So we have to figure out ways to sort of meet all interests in the middle. So my first questions are going to be for pharma and for biotech is how do you all feel about being told to do this? I want to hear your perspectives. That's the missing conversation over 2020 
2023. I'm figuring uh, that there's going to be a bunch of loopholes and lobbying for things that are going to pinch from this omnibus bill. And it's going to take advocates. It's going to take doctors. And it's going to take patience to say, we want this to be a carrot. Don't make it turn into a stick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what I think that's what the FDA wants this to be also. You know, the way the guidance that came out in April last year when it was just a guidance. Right. That was very much like, it'd be great if you all did this. Be nice. We would recommend that you did right. it. Right. And I think now it's kind of. Yeah. I mean, FDA was like, oh, oh, so you stuck his, you snuck that depict act in the omnibus bill. Okay. Well, it's now it's time for us to really create some paper around mm-hmm. it. And I, I applaud Oncology Center of Excellence for doing so, for starting the guidance and then being able to say, here's a, here's a template to get started. Yeah. Right. But I, I do feel though, that having sort of the information from pharma and biotech about this is how far we can go based on our structural foundation. And then five years from now, we'll make a plan to loosen that foundation, to start taking those bricks out the wall. Mm -hmm. But what you're going to get right now, you're going to get a lot of patient engagement councils, number one on the supply side. (laughs) You know, Oh, does anybody know any black and brown patient advocates? We need to <laughs> stick them on committees. You're going to get that. But then what you're going to get is the full, full full court press to vendors who I don't believe the mandate is governing, right? Who's regulating the vendors? So is there any language within those laws that say it's almost like um, subcontracting? You know, when it or when it was all about, you've got to get a contract, a subcontractor that's a minority business. Well, nobody was really checking how I found that minority business. So it could have been a shell company. I said it was a minority business, so therefore it is. So I'm asking, the next question is going to be, who is asking the protocol of how vendors are selecting patients? Mm-hmm. What strategies are you using to ensure that there is equal opportunity amongst the diversity of your list, right? That's going to be real. That's going to be mighty interesting. It's like, oh, I found you some Black folks, but were, were, were they from zip code 606 dot dot? Well, you didn't say all that. You just said you wanted. <laughs> and I gave you what you asked me for. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm most concerned about. Yeah. Because is, is it going to be very difficult to find a Black patient across income streams, across all the social determinants of health, if you all claim are these barriers to my health and my my uh, my health outcomes, how are you going to find those folks? That's going to be the kick in the head. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see the strategy. I want to see yeah. the algorithm. Yeah, I think transparency, like you're saying, it's a bit, it's a big piece of anything meaningful and lasting. It goes back to the interpretation of the law. Will the vendors be accountable for that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you're pushing that all on the on the researcher. And the researcher is just going to go to, you know, back in the day, go to the phone book, to the yellow pages and find a vendor, right? Now they're just going to go online and find a vendor. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're going to write in that report and say, 
we we vetted, we did a bid, we vetted three, we picked one, and this was the data we got from them. You know, every time we're taking a step forward, it just opens up 10,000 questions of, but this or this, there's endless considerations, which is not a bad thing. I, you know, I think it's not a we, bad thing. No. If diverse people were sitting around the table because someone with a, a, a more sharper eye or something with a lot more uh, depth of critique mm -hmm. asked that very same question. I mean, I don't think I'm brilliant, but I'm not the, the dullest crayon in the, in the, in the box <laughs> either. And when I ask a simple question like this and it's like, oh, mm -hmm. that makes me extremely nervous. Well, concerned. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and thought about that? Okay. <laughs> That's scary. <laughs> so yeah, we got a long way to go. Long way to go. And so I think maybe to end this off, because I've taken up lots of your time today, but I'm wondering, you know, I think we've had a really good conversation today about considerations that we need to be mindful of, concerns we have, realities of making any real change. I'm wondering if maybe we end on a happy note. You know, what for you is something that you're really encouraged by? What is something either across, you know, the last three years in the, the endless conversations that you've been having or something more recent? You know, what makes you not feel like all is lost in this endeavor? As a patient advocate, what makes me feel hopeful is my ability to actually influence uh, what I have had this opportunity a decade ago, even five years ago. I doubt it. My ability now to, to email someone, to direct message a provider or a researcher and actually get a conversation with that person without, without being gatekeeped by their personal assistants or secretaries. And then not to be gatekeeped, but to ask the question and to further my own thinking about how do we create strategies that could be helpful. To be able to look at an issue and see clearly the inequity and to be able to say, how can we look at negative descriptors in, in clinical notes and change that factor as opposed to asking me to sit on a panel and say, as a Black patient advocate, what strategies will we use uh, to include more uh, Black people in clinical trials? No, I am not going to talk to you about Tuskegee or Henrietta Lacks. When I know implicit bias starts in my clinical notes, I have no time for those types of narratives. So I'm hopeful because I get an opportunity to ask directly to people who are making the, who are, who are creating the policies and implementing the programs. So I'm hopeful because I can also use those mechanics of social media to say, great talk I had with you today about and tag that person and let the world know that here's a person who uh, on the inside cares and advocates for change as well. So that's what, I think that's what makes me hopeful, right? That's the positive sides of things because, you know, every everybody is not evil, right? Everyone has an opportunity in the current job that they have to look at what is what do I contribute to structural racism? Every single person, when whatever job you're in, you get to decide based on the rules of the job in my job description, how do I impact? How do I keep 
people of color or of sexual orientation from a better health outcome? What role am I playing, right? Every single person in this ecosystem, whether it's researchers or providers or, you know, people like you, you could have made a decision as to what you, what do you want to push? What is the narrative that ACRO wants to push in terms of patient engagement and diversity? And you, Sophia, could have made a decision. Well, I know, you know, I know Janet and I know, you know, <laughs> Susan, and we could have a wonderful conversation. And Check, podcast, done. But you made a different decision. In the position that you're in, what can I do today? Well, I'll have a conversation with Kimberly Richardson about diversity and equity and inclusion in clinical trial practice. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I mean, I would say I'm hopeful that people like you are out there who are, you know, that's what keeps me hopeful down this track is, you know, we work internally with the ACRA committee and stuff like that is that there's, it's always encouraging to see so many people who really take this on as part of their, you know, on top of their day job, especially conversations like this, where we're really trying to get to the root of some meaningful actions and what, and being really, you know, sober and upfront about what it's actually going to take, you know, and not really skirting around the same five talking points we've heard for however many years now. So I'm very encouraged by conversations like this. There can be good conversations to be had still. Mm-hmm. So we relax and stop being uncomfortable about having the conversation. It's like, I'm not responsible for it. I'm like, nobody said you were responsible for it. But what are you doing today forward? Right. Well, thank you. I should... I should let you get back to your day, but this has been a really, really great conversation. And, you know, I'm looking forward to continuing to see where we go with this. And there's a lot of really great opportunity. Um, And so I guess it's just about seizing that. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I'm honored to be with you today. So, so thank you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that episode. We'll be back next week for the season finale of season one of GCP, where I'll be joined by Cindy Verst and Peyton Howell to wrap up our episode one discussion on women in clinical research.